The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. They're calling it Goldilocks. Was this jobs report just right? Stocks are at session highs right now. Yields are pulling back and a deluge of largely better than expected earnings. That's also helping sentiment as well. Amazon, one of those posting its biggest profit beat since 2020. Apple shares, yes, they're lower on the weaker September morning. 84% of S&P companies have reported now with 80% of them beating expectations and revenue growth even turned positive. So is the stage set for this rally to keep roaring? Our market's guest says he's not so sure. All good things must come to an end. He'll tell us what he is still buying, and that is ahead. Before all that, though, let's start with this jobs report. Worst news on the hiring front, just 187,000 jobs added, but better signs on the unemployment rate, which dropped to 3.5%. And what to make of the surprise uptick in wages? Who better to ask about than two of our favorite economic minds, one of which is getting closer and closer to nailing the number, by the way. That would be KPMG's chief economist, Diane Swank, who last month came within 6,000 of the number, and today within 7,000. And while she thinks the soft landing's in the works, she's also watching three events that could send shockwaves through the economy. She's back with us along with our very own Steve Leisman. He is here on set with me. Your own forecasting chops aren't bad either, Steve, we should say. Well, I, I haven't been forecasting since the pandemic, but maybe now it's time to go back in. And I think the question for Diane is obvious. Why'd you miss by 7,000? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, what, what went wrong, Diane? Oh, you sound like my dad did. That's what my so, dad used you know, to say to why'd me. Why'd you get that A minus, Diane? Not why 95 and not 100? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Diane, do you think you're picking up on, on some kind of, you know, what, what, do you think it's just, a, just tell me a little bit more about this and what your reactions were to the, to the report? Oh, I was extremely pleased with the report. It really was exciting because we, we're seeing continued, this would have been a blowout month or a great month of the 2010s. And it's, you know, the labor market, we've got job gains continuing, the unemployment rate back down to three and a half percent. We've got wages at 4.4 percent, the same as they were in May, but productivity growth has accelerated. And the data today suggests it accelerated even more than what we saw in the second quarter. And that's the elixir that makes us able to retain these wage gains as workers and not have it threaten the Fed as a spillover into inflation. And so, you know, the idea that with fewer workers, we're still at a low unemployment rate and wages were, you know, still there. That's just wonderful news. I mean, I just I'm leaning into this report. I'm worried about the bond market and the bloodbath that we've seen there and what's going on. But for the moment, I'm going to take this win. Who who spoils? Can I be the Goldilocks spoiler, Steve, and point out some of the, the things that, you know, we could we could take we could be more alarmed about. Right. Uh, payroll revisions looking lower. Uh, what are some of the other things? Is temp, temp jobs? That's still been an issue now for quite some time. Um, just the general deceleration so, uh, that we're I seeing was, in hiring. I was trying to look at and that weekly kind of, hours, you know, aggregate yeah. that that's slowing. A couple of things. I'll get to those individual things in a second. But I was trying to look at the uh, history of these things. Is there a situation where payrolls decline and stop declining? 
There have been some situations like that. Middle of 85 was a situation like that. Middle of 95 was a situation like that. So soft landings for the job market are not the rule, but they can happen and they have happened in the past. And you just identified the weaknesses of the report. Temporary help is a leading indicator down by 22,000. Leisure and hospitality, interestingly, has leveled off. It has been a huge source of job gains um, uh, uh, for the past several months. And now it's down to like 10,000 or so. And they're stopping some 300,000 short of where they were before the pandemic. So that may, end, that may end as a source of job growth. I don't like the patient rate has uh, uh, leveled off at 62.6. I would hope we'd be attracting more people into the workforce. Uh, that does not appear to be happening. I think it's potentially significant. So those are some of the weaknesses that are out there. Um, but we keep talking about this idea of this asynchronous or asynchronicity of, of the economy. You have some areas are going down, others coming back up. Leisure hospitality is leveled off, but look at what happened with healthcare, 63,000 workers. Right, we'll have more on that in a moment, actually. Diane, and, and I saw some uh, one of the firms the other day calling these kind of mini-recessions. It might have even been a Fed official saying, you know, you, we had a housing mini-recession. Like recession. Exa- yeah. Exactly, Barking. rolling recessions, manufacturing. Where do we go from here? Well, that's, you know, what we've seen is, you know, the Fed saw fighting inflation as a marathon, not a sprint. And here we are in what is supposed to be the hardest mile, getting from 3% inflation down to 2%, and it's becoming a relay race. And I think that's the important Hmm. thing because the labor market is held up as weaker sectors have handed off the baton to softer, so stronger sectors. And overall, employment gains are slowing to a pace that would have been considered extremely good in the 2010s and at this level of unemployment, still very good. On the participation rate, Steve, one of the things I was encouraged by was the strong pickup in the over 65 crowd. Yeah. And that's something, you know, has been missing since the onset of the pandemic, and it was driven by women. So there are still some signs out there that we can get more workers that we're bringing in. But, I, you know, we do have retirements. We do have an aging demographic. We don't have the same immigration that we did prior to the pandemic and even prior to the 2016 um, era. And I think that's important as well. But right now, things look very good. And remember, soft landings or to borrow... Jay Powell's phrase from March 2022, soft dish. Landings are not without pain. And pain is a euphemism for unemployment. I'm going to call you after this uh, uh, session here because I want to talk to you about a story I'm working on for Monday. And I'll tell you what that is. We have missing workers or zombie workers because we keep adding a lot of workers, double what we should be adding. But we're not bringing any more workers into the workforce. So I don't know where they're coming from. Maybe you can tell me later and I'll do that story for Monday. Wait, they're coming in the workforce. We don't know where they're going. They're not coming into the workforce. You have to, if you're going to be adding. So job gains are showing up, but not in the household. But not in the household on the other side. So one of those things could be wrong. August 23rd, write that down in your calendar. We get the benchmark revision report. But I want it before. And Jackson Hole coming up. And I still wonder, what are we preparing for? Right? Is the big announcement that they're going to stop hiking? Is the big announcement higher for longer? Diane, we haven't talked to you about Fitch and some of the issues there. I I want to just talk about one thing real quickly, which is I don't want you to lose the powerful bond market rally that's going on today. Thank God it did, by the way, because when we hit 420 earlier on, you know they were sweating. They were sweating. But take a look, guys, at the 10-year, if you have it available, there's been a pretty strong rally. I think what happened is maybe Fitch, maybe Ackman got people a little bit nervous. And so 
guy, the, the street must have been short duration. And then they said, well, wait a second. This is an all clear signal for us to go in and fulfill orders or whatever was going on out there. But now you're back down to 407, which is, by the way, exactly where my conversation with Rick Santelli, which was on the phone earlier today, said we might end the day. But if he said if we forget to four, then all hell's going to break loose. But in any event, it's powered the stock market and it's powered the bond market. You ask the question, is it too hot, too cold, just right? The bond market and the stock market are telling you. Goldilocks is happy right now. She found the right bowl of porridge. And no more hikes? It's not no in the hikes. cards right now. I have, I have a, no. a chart, I think, guys, if you have it in the back there, I think we're at a 13% or something like that probability. What is that number? 14, 14. On, uh, yeah. on September and 30. Those are all down a couple points. Wow. So the higher odds of, a, of another hike is actually in November, yeah, not that's... September right now. Right. All right, Diane, I'll give you a quick last word. Well, you know, this is... I got to savor the moment. There's still risks ahead. We noted those. And I think the economy is going to slow and soft landings are not without consequences. These are rolling recessions. This is a relay race. That said, I'll take a relay race to get across the finish line if it means more of us get to cross the finish line working. Yeah, absolutely. Diane Swank, Steve Leisman, as always, thank you both very much on this Jobs Day. We appreciate it. Pleasure. The data may be just enough to fuel the market euphoria we've been seeing so far this year, but my next guest says that's precisely the problem. It's getting harder to find bargains, and while he's not rushing in to buy, he says there are still good names out there. Joining me now is Bill Smead, Chief Investment Officer at Smead Capital Management. Bill, it's great to see you again. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Kelly. Do you want to react to the jobs report? What do you think is going on here? Well, we made the argument over the last couple of years that the millennial uh, dominance that would take over in the marketplace uh, of economics would make it hard to slow the economy down, even with a severe Fed tightening. You, you and I have talked about this over the last couple of years. It showed up in housing, right? The housing recession didn't last very long because there's just too many people with too much money chasing too few houses. So, so that was going to be a factor. The irony is that led us to think that uh, that that it would make it more difficult on stocks. But this is such a, an amazing euphoria episode that just nothing stops stocks. <laughs> you know, it, crypto didn't stop stocks. Memes didn't stop right. stocks. Beyond Meat and Peloton didn't stop stocks. And now a company can report 65 cents in quarterly earnings and be worth $140 a share. Mm -hmm. So it, this you, you got everything you want in, in this particular mania. That was an Amazon reference? A, a slight humorous Amazon reference. I'm just making sure I'm thinking, okay, but what, for viewers who go and wait, which one? Yeah. No, I know. Listen, we've talked about whether that part of the market is overvalued and everything we've seen with names like Tupperware and all the rest taking off. What does that tell you? I mean, where do you want to be positioned if you're still in stocks, obviously, but you want to kind of avoid anything that might end up looking frothy in retrospect? Yeah, here, here's a fun one to keep an eye on. So President Biden did kind of a brilliant thing by selling a whole bunch of oil at high prices. And and uh, and the reason that was brilliant is that what you pay at the pump is is probably 10 times as important psychologically to people's read on inflation as it is on actual inflation, it, because what you pay at the pump is a very small part of your uh, personal consumption expenditures compared to the last 50 years. We're down around the two and a half percent level, and it used to be four and a half or five percent. 
But psychologically, it is Americans' main read on inflation, right? You go to the gas pump. Totally. If the price is down, you think inflation is down. You go and it's up. And Well, guess what? We just we're back to eighty three dollars a barrel. And those gas stations are going to be charging quite a bit more at eighty three dollars a barrel than they were at sixty six a few months ago. So so that is going to be interesting because they're all betting that that game was over. But the most important psychological thing is about to hit the other direction. That's one way I would differ with Diane. I I don't see us getting to two percent. And if we do, it'll be the most temporary 2% in the history of mankind. I also noticed maybe this is just my store, my town, I don't know what, but milk, eggs, chicken prices all higher by about a dollar or so again this morning, which I, I found that a little unusual. Uh, you, Speaking of oil, though, you do own Oxy. Um, so from the investor side of this, what are the plays here? Well, it, it's uh, we own Oxy, APA, OBV. Uh, uh, Devon Energy, uh, the more the merrier, right? Uh, it, 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 it's just going to be a great era because the prices are only going to go up. And if you're someone that wants a quicker, clean energy transition, the higher the oil price gets, the quicker the transition. So $125 or $150 barrel oil would cause people to make the switch sooner, uh, but it won't cause us to not need the oil and gas, so it's it, it will just get cleaner use of it. And uh, so Oxy is at the forefront of of the best combination. I think that's why Buffett likes it so much. Yeah. He's 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 going to store carbon uh, in the ground through Oxy. And he is going to have a delightful time selling oil and gas for the next 20 years. So I want to ask you like two final questions. I don't know if we're going to have time, but let me let me just try to, to jam it in. I want to mention Barbie because Warner Brothers Discovery is a stock you like, although you don't typically strike me as the kind of guy who wants to invest on, you know, on a box office hit. It, it It's just the tonic that this company needed. There just didn't seem to ever be any good news that would indicate that David Zasloff's effort to get back to copious free cash flow and and improving the balance sheet enough to allow the the earnings to show up in a big way. And I've already seen it twice. I think it's the the best intellectual satire movie since Mel Brooks. In fact, I wonder if Mel Brooks was a consultant because I just busted a gut both times. It's it's a brilliant movie and it's got serious legs. All right. So let me ask you my last question then, which circles back to the market. You say we continue to believe that this financial euphoric episode is going to get solved with difficulty. You're in the Charlie Munger and the Seth Klarman camp. When you say solved with difficulty, are you talking about rate hikes, a market crash? What kind of difficulty do you foresee? Unfortunately, euphoria episodes are incredibly good right up until they're terrible. It it won't it, it won't end well. Uh, in fact, my only concern for Berkshire Hathaway is in our management of the, uh, of our strategy, we we sell maniacal pricing, and forty year old companies that are mature, uh, we would consider thirty to forty times earnings maniacal, and uh, and that hasn't bit people yet because anything at high quality they they've stuck with. So that's the big risk. At some point, you come in. And the historical market multiple is 15. The the market goes to 13, and those stocks go to 18 times earnings, and, and you get some serious damage.
Right. Although you would feel comfortable in that case and where you're positioned, kind of riding it out, maybe even being opportunistic. So you're telling me you think Apple, Amazon, you know, Meta, all of them, you know, 18 times earnings that could happen in the next 12 months. Yeah. And, and remember, a lot of people confuse this. Uh, Disney and Coke were 89 and 60 times earnings in 1972. And the companies did spectacularly the next 10 years and their stocks did terrible. So don't confuse corporate success with stock success. A lot of times the stock price all the future success in very early. Yeah. And do you think high rates would be kind of the reason for that, for for a big market uh, repricing or something else? Maybe financial slowdown? I I think Seth Klarman was saying free money caused an everything bubble. And and he's right. But the price earnings ratios haven't adjusted. I mean, you can buy a six month T-bill at five and a quarter percent. And and why would you get the same price earnings ratios at five and a quarter that you did at one and a quarter? That makes no sense. No, I agree. It just it's somehow reassuring to hear it from you. Uh, We can all try to ponder how this is going to play out from here, I suppose. Bill, as always, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having us. Bill Smead, Smead Capital Management. For more investing ideas, don't miss our special Taking Stock tonight. Mike Santoli and Josh Brown will wrap up the earnings week, 6 p.m. Eastern, and explore some different and creative ideas. Coming up, the battle between the SEC and Coinbase is heating up as the company asks a federal judge to dismiss the SEC's lawsuit. Coinbase's chief policy officer defends their aggressive strategy next. Plus, it's one of the hottest companies in healthcare. Not a drug maker, no, nothing weight loss or Alzheimer's. The co-founder and co-CEO of Figs will join me on the heels of their earnings beat. And as we head to break, here's a quick check on the markets. The Nasdaq is leading the way with a 1% gain today, but we have three quarter percent rallies pretty much across the board. 45.53 for the S&P 500, 4.07% for the 10-year that hit 4.2 a little earlier on. For the week, the Dow positive, the S&P and Nasdaq still down about 1% since Monday. We're back after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Coinbase filing a request to a federal judge this morning to dismiss the suit brought by the SEC, accusing the world's largest publicly traded crypto exchange of violating federal security laws. Now, it comes after Coinbase also just reported a narrower than expected loss and a beat on the top line. They were also uh, optimistic on the regulatory outlook in their earnings release. The shares are up about a fraction of a percent at 91. Joining us to discuss the hurdles ahead and an exchange exclusive is Coinbase Chief Policy Officer Faryar Sherzad, along with our very own Eamon Javers, our senior Washington correspondent, who, of course, has been closely following the crypto clash in D.C. Welcome to both of you. And Faryar, I'll start with you. You guys have taken a notably aggressive stance in defending yourself here. Do you think it's going to pay off? 
I think so. I mean, look, it's an area where regulatory clarity is absolutely needed. You've got bipartisan support in Congress and the House and the Senate to kind of get to work, pass legislation and provide the clarity that the industry needs. And we're excited to be a part of that. The court cases are a part of that. Uh, but really, Congress, I think, ultimately is going to have to take up the gavel and get the work done. And we had big, big bipartisan progress last week. So that was pretty exciting. Eamon, do you want to jump in on that? I mean, how yeah. do you think Coinbase will separate itself from the field if it will? And what are the odds of it, you know, def I don't want to say defeating, but um, kind of shrugging off an SEC lawsuit that's typically um, one of the worst things that could happen to a company? Well, we're in uncharted territory here, and that's why the question, I think, for Fariar is, uh, you take a big step back, right? You're arguing to the SEC that crypto and these other things are not securities, right? Uh, but I think the big philosophical question is, you know, what are they and what are they good for? What, what are they, what's the actual purpose of crypto? When it was developed, you know, the idea was it was going to be cryptocurrency. It was going to be a currency and you'd be able to buy things with it. You can't really buy a lot of stuff with crypto. You can buy some stuff, but not throughout the economy. So it's not really a currency. You're saying it's not really a security, which was the next thing people had. Well, this will be an investable asset. We'll invest in it. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, it's also, is it a commodity? Not really, because, you know, when you buy pork bellies or something, there's an actual pork belly under that contract somewhere that you could eat. And there's nothing like that with crypto. So what is crypto? What's it good for? Shvayar? Yeah, it's a really great question. So the answer, if you take yet another step back, Eamon, and look at the rest of the world, they've answered this quite clearly. What virtually every other major economy has done is they've created a new asset class, which they call crypto assets or sort of der derivative of that. So the European Union, for example, very high standard, very, uh, very, uh, you know, sophisticated regulatory environment. Uh, they passed a piece of legislation called the Market and Crypto Assets Regulation, and they created a new asset class. Uh, the issue we have in the United States is that we have two different market regulators. You have the SEC and the CFTC, and their jurisdiction is defined by whether something is a commodity or a security. So ultimately, what we have in the U.S. is not a big philosophical question. We have a turf battle that ultimately Congress needs to resolve. And then on the use cases, the answer is pretty clear. You know, on the internet, we all live our lives on the internet. The early stage of the internet, you could get on there and read content. The second stage, which we have now, you can read and write. But what you, can't been, what you haven't been able to do is to uh, transmit value. Crypto is the technology that allows you to transmit value. And that value can be concert tickets, it can be gaming points, it can be a security. Uh, or it can be the token itself in terms of how it allows you to navigate a particular protocol. And that is a commodity. So I think the answer is right in front of us. I don't think it's that complicated. And I think we should just be careful not to let turf disputes ultimately decide something that at this moment has huge no, geopolitical no question, significance. No question there's a turf dispute going on here in Washington, and that's kind of endemic to Washington being Washington, right? I guess the, other, the question about the asset, though, if you're talking about the core value uh, of crypto, you know, what is to pre prevent this asset from just going to zero? Right. I mean, is it an asset that depends on the greater fool theory? That is, somebody else will just pay more than I paid for it. Or is it an asset which has some core value underneath it, like that pork belly, which ultimately there's something there, you know, way below all those derivative contracts. There's something there you can eat. Uh, is there something there you can eat with Bitcoin or crypto in general? Well, the tokens each have different functionality and different use cases. So when you hear about like the twenty five thousand open source code blockchain developers who are hard at work, they're developing applications on different protocols. The tokens are the mechanism by which you navigate the protocols. And so people, um, you know, essentially are buying these tokens in part because of the functionality that they provide and their ability to 
navigate the Ethereum network or another network. And so well, what the use value does that are, create? I guess that's the question. What value does that create? I mean, it's I mean, is it a video game na navigating the Ethereum network? I mean, is I, I'd say that tongue in cheek, right? I mean, you know, we all know what the Ethereum network is, but what value to consumers does that create at the end of the day? Well, the value can be in different forms. You can have a token that's ultimately a piece of artwork. You can have a token uh, that's a concert ticket. It's the application that ultimately de determines the value. Crypto itself is just simply a technology. It's a way to right. immutably and permanently um, record an ownership interest. That's a really big deal. That's a profound thing. And so we'll see the applications develop, whether it's identity solutions, storing of carbon credits, land titling, or whether we were in Colorado, we'd have hunting and fishing licenses on the blockchain. Each of those are represented by a token, and that's a very exciting thing, and the U.S. should be a part of that. Eamon, one question about the administration's approach here, which we've seen, uh, for instance, on mergers. They've gotten some pushback in court about um, their, their intentions there. Yeah. Could we see similar pushback? Obviously, the Coinbase is appealing to a, to a federal judge uh, to push back against the SEC here. How likely uh, could a pushback like that be to prevail in court? I mean, I think there, there could be a legal pushback. I think also you have to look at the politics of this, Kelly, right? Because crypto is an enormously popular thing, right? There are a lot of people who care deeply about what's going on in crypto. And they, those people vote. Uh, they express themselves on social media. I'm sure we're going to get some uh, tweets or X's or whatever after this segment. Uh, and that is part of the political power of the crypto ecosystem. And I think for the Biden administration, the challenge is how do you regulate this without alienating all of those people and creating an, uh, an impression that you're just anti-crypto and that you're just, you know, promoting FUD out of Washington, right? I mean, that that's sort of the political danger that the Biden administration uh, is dealing with here as they try to do a soft touch, but maybe not as soft a touch as we've had in the past. Yeah. And uh, Faryar, just to kind of summarize the, an the uh, analyst community all over the place on the company, you've got um, some thinking, OK, once there's regulatory clarity, it's an $80 stock. Others saying, um, nope, you know, even so, there's this is just retail price hikes, rapidly declining volumes. The stock's worth 27. So um, there seems to be questions not just a, about what happens with the SEC, but also uh, just again about the um, durability of interest in using a platform like Coinbase's. Oh, I think the interest is, going to, is enormous and it will remain enormous. I mean, think about it. Twenty percent of the American people have participated in the crypto economy. The users around the world number in the hundreds of millions. Uh, the adoption in different jurisdictions around the world, different economies, is enormous. Plus, you have central banks hard at work trying to tokenize uh, central bank digital currency. Uh, it's all happening around us. It's the next generation of the Internet. Coinbase is a public company, audited, transparent, highly regulated, well-run. I think the quarterly earnings results demonstrate that. You have bipartisan support in Congress to provide clarity. Uh, you know, the, the runway ahead is a really good one. It's a very exciting time. And the fact that we had members in two committees, three different votes, big bipartisan uh, majorities uh, pass good clarifying legislation is an, is an exciting thing. And, and uh, you know, we'll get there. All right. Faryar Sherzad, Chief Policy Officer at Coinbase and our own Eamon Javers. Thank you both very much today. We appreciate Thank it. Thank you, guys. Coming Thank up, you. a tale of two travel stocks, booking hitting an all-time high while Expedia is coming off its worst day since the start of the pandemic. We'll tell you what's behind this divide next. The Exchange is back after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Yeah! 
or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Welcome back to The Exchange. Booking Holdings hitting an all-time high and tracking for its best day since November 2020. On the flip side, Expedia, its rival, is coming off its worst day since the pandemic began. What is behind this divide? We turn to Seema Modi for some of those answers. Hi, Seema. And Kelly, you know, it seems like Expedia and Booking actually delivered solid earnings. Both of them did, but there were slight nuances. Expedia missed on second quarter gross bookings while Booking Holdings beat uh, Expedia reiterating its full year guidance while booking raised its outlook. So there were some differences there, but it's the resumption of international travel, right? That's where booking really outshined its peers. CEO Glenn Fogel has been aggressively expanding into foreign markets, forging new ties with, for example, Chinese companies like Meituan, Trip and Didi. And that is certainly paying off the company's second quarter room nights in Asia, jumping 40% year over year. Wedbush, Credit Suisse, JP Morgan are among the analysts raising their price targets on the stock today, which just hit a fresh all-time high. Expedia, you'll see, giving back some of its losses after plunging around 16% yesterday. Regarding future demand, pricing will likely pay a, play a bigger role. On Airbnb's quarterly earnings call last night, CEO Brian Chesky saying, if we can keep prices very affordable and then also focus on reliability, I think there's going to be a lot of demand to come. Kelly? Well, if it's affordable, uh, for sure. Uh, that's the whole book. Seema, thank you very right? much. That tells yep. you exactly, exactly. are becoming price at, conscious. At a low price versus a higher one. Uh, Seema, we appreciate it. We turn to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? All right, Kelly, thank you very much. Uh, the federal courts do not allow cameras in the courtroom, but uh, House Democrats want to change that when it comes to former President Trump. They're asking in a letter to the Judicial Conference, which determines policy for federal courts, to allow them during his trials because of the importance to democratic institutions and the need for transparency. Meantime, two Tennessee Democrats won back their seats Thursday night after being expelled by Republicans in April for protesting in support of gun safety. Both lawmakers were reinstated to the legislature by local government officials after their expulsion. But they still had to run for their old seats. The wins come just before a special legislative session that was called to address gun reform. And the Center for Disease Control voted to recommend an infant RSV shot. The shot intended for two groups, babies up to eight months old who are entering their first virus season or infants eight to 19 months old who are at high risk. The injection delivers antibodies to the bloodstream directly and should be available in the fall. More healthy babies. Kelly, back to you. Absolutely. Makes those first months a little bit less scary. Tyler, thanks. Coming up, Wall Street seems torn on figs, with Piper calling it one of their favorite ideas in the digital disruptor space. But Raymond James saying headwinds could worsen when student loan payments resume. Lots to talk about with the company's co-founder and co-CEO, Trina Spear, joins me next. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of hospital scrubs maker Figs are higher this morning. Uh, they paired some of the gains this afternoon. They're up half a percent right now after the company posted an earnings and revenue beat. Net revenue up 13 percent from a year ago. Guidance reiterated, adjusted up their earnings margin. It all comes amid ongoing strength in the market for medical workers. As Steve Leisman pointed out earlier, Healthcare was the leading industry for job creation in July, adding 63,000 jobs. And joining me now to talk more about this is FIG's co-founder and CEO, Trina Spear. Trina, welcome. Thank you for having me, Kelly. You know, it's one thing to have top line growth and another thing to have, you know, the bottom line in there as well. Talk to me a little bit about um, kind of earnings and how that projection looks, especially as a relatively new company. Sure. You know, I think we are really pleased with our second quarter results. You know, we had 13 percent growth in the quarter um, and that's stacked on top of multiple years of 100 percent growth. Um, and so, you know, and to your point, that was coupled with profitability, which is always important to us. Uh, growth and profitability, continuing to build the business, continuing to execute on our strategic priorities um, and show up for our healthcare community. And, you know, anecdotally, I see figs everywhere. And direct to consumer is one of those things that starts out really well for a lot of companies. I'm thinking of Allbirds, but then becomes hard to maintain because it turns out that marketing spend or that customer acquisition cost might be just as high as going wholesale. Are you wedded to the direct to consumer model or do you think the company could show up, you know, in a lot of different ways going forward? Yeah, I mean, our direct to consumer model has worked out really well for us. And you see that in our marketing stability uh, it's been about 15% of net revenue quarter after quarter after quarter, and we continue to show that even in our last quarter. So, um, but to your point, uh, there's more that we, where we want to show up. You know, retail is a priority for us. Uh, we're opening our first permanent store in Century City Mall this fall, and we're following that by our second store in Philly. And these aren't just stores, they really are community hubs where our healthcare workers can come together and connect with us as a brand and connect with each other. Um, and I think, you know, direct-to-consumer isn't just e-commerce. Direct-to-consumer is uh, in-person events. It is showing up in, you know, in a store footprint. Um, and we're excited to be where our community is. Interesting. And the stock, of course, went public during kind of the, the IPO uh, crazy days, if I can call them that. What was about 2020, maybe 2021. Um, do you think that going forward, though, Figs is going to be a company that emulates, you know, the Maybe you can pick an example better than me. You know, when I think about um, some of the restaurant companies coming public, they go, well, we want to be the next Chipotle, right? I think about you guys. Is it a Warby Parker model or something like that? You know, I think, you know, we want to be a global, iconic lifestyle brand. And there's a few examples. I think, you know, the comparison many make is Lululemon, uh, incredible community, incredible company. Um, and that's probably, you know, there's not a lot of comparisons, though, given we are a healthcare company as well, right? We're in a resilient industry, to your point right before I jumped on. Um, you know, we sell non-discretionary products uh, to the people that are the backbone of our society. Uh, we're not, we, we really don't uh, track to consumer necessarily. Uh, it's, we really are healthcare uh, selling uniforms so that people can go and do their jobs. Yeah. And, you know, the stock was once in the 40s, you know, a couple of years ago. Again, I mean, a lot of names have resized since then. But now that you're posting the earnings growth, you feel more confident about that trajectory. What would you say to investors who maybe aren't giving you the benefit of the doubt? You know, we are just focused on executing and continuing to serve uh, healthcare workers. I think our numbers do speak for themselves um, and eventually the market will catch up. So, you know, we're just going to keep doing what we do best can keep focusing on building incredible products, uh, quality matters, uh, keep connecting with our community, 
keep building out our product line. You know, it was great to see um, that, you know, our non-scrubs portion of our business grew 25% in the quarter. And our customers, about 40% of our customers are buying, um, you know, not just our scrubs, but also our fleeces and our vests and our underscrubs. And so really building ourselves to be a lifestyle brand for the long run. And, you know, we're just going to keep executing. International is huge. We grew over 50% in the quarter. Uh, our team's business is another huge opportunity. So we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. No, I, I've, you know, I would be the worst healthcare worker of all time. I, I've, I pass out at the doctor's office, basically. But I look at the, this figs and I'm like, maybe I should, you know, those are pretty cool. Like that, it, it's enough that I want them. So you're right. Maybe there's potential outside of that. Maybe somehow are concerned about the student loan repayment overhang. Certainly that's shown up in some of the analyst notes. What are your thoughts on that? Sure. You know, I don't have a crystal ball, um, but, you know, I can tell you what we're seeing with our community. You know, I think the student loans, you know, our healthcare community, there's many that have them, but that's been around since before the forgiveness program went into place. We started it 10 years ago in 2013 and up until 2020, healthcare workers had student loans and we grew, you know, we had our highest growing years during those years. And so um, we are, you know, we aim to sell affordable, accessible products so our healthcare professionals can get what they need to go to work. But once again, it's your uniform and you need it uh, to look good and feel good and perform at your best. And we don't think that healthcare workers are going to go naked to work. Right. No, we hope not. So Los Angeles, maybe Philly is next. Uh, we look forward to, to watching your story as you grow. Trina, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. Trina Spear, co-founder, co-CEO of Figs. Still ahead, companies from Shake Shack to Clorox reporting slower demand in the second quarter. But one consumer spending indicator is reapproaching record highs. We'll tell you what that is next. Welcome back to The Exchange. A new report is showing that with home prices hitting another high, home equity is also approaching record levels again. Diana Olick is here with the numbers. Diana? Well, Kelly, after a brief drop last year, home prices have been rising again for several months and just hit record highs in 60 percent of U.S. markets. That's according to an exclusive new report from Black Knight. Now, their national home price index hit a new high in June, up 0.67 percent month to month and up 0.8 percent from June of last year. That's a bigger annual gain than in May. Nearly every major market saw gains month to month. And this is why affordability is at a 37-year low. Just as a comparison, Current homeowners, most of whom carry mortgages with rates in the 3 to 4 percent range, they need just 21 percent of the median household income to make the average monthly mortgage payment. That's principal and interest. Now, prospective homebuyers today, they're looking at more than 36 percent of their income on that payment thanks to higher home prices and higher rates. And by the way, the 30-year fixed is well over 7 percent and has been over all week. Yesterday, it had been rising all week and is now holding there. So home price growth has made homeowners wealthier again. Home equity levels are now back to within 3% of last year's peaks. Total equity hit over $16 trillion with tappable equity, that's the amount you can take out while still leaving 20% equity in the home, rose to $10.5 trillion, and that's just under $200,000 per homeowner. Cash-out refis are still historically low right now, but second home equity loans are slowly rising. And Kelly, that speaks to potential consumer spending going forward. It's fascinating, though, because home equity lines of credit are so expensive now. So people in the past who might have said, great, I'd love to tap my equity, are now going, well, I don't want to pay six, seven, eight, nine, whatever the number percent is. 
Right. And that's why they're rising very, very slowly. And when I say they're up, they're not any higher than historical norms. In fact, they're still low. And that's the big barrier is how do you get the money out of the house because that home equity line of credit is so high. If mortgage rates should pull back a little bit more and you could get that equity line for between five and six percent, I think you'd see a lot more people taking home equity out. Right. And is there any other way in which you think this would have a macro impact? Because for a lot of people, you know, they don't hate it, but there's really not a lot of ways this would translate into, for instance, consumer spending or something like that. Well, but remember, homeowner wealth makes you feel better about your own personal finances. And even if you're not taking the money out of the home, you do know it's there. And there's also a very, very low number of people who are underwater on their mortgages. So there's really not a lot of stress when it comes to being a homeowner and having that wealth in your home. That may just maybe emotionally translate into feeling better about spending the money that you don't have in your home. Yeah, I, I do totally agree. It's like the gas price effect. It's outsized on, uh, on the rest of your spending. Diana, Thanks. We appreciate it. Diana Olick. Steal ahead. Bonds are rallying. Stocks are rallying. We would ask, how do you grow your money now? But maybe that just happens no matter where you turn. Gene Chatsky and Karen Feinerman will tell us about that next. And as we head to break, check out telephone and data systems and U.S. cellular. Wow, look at these gains. 86 and 92 percent. Best day ever for both of these stocks after the board said they've decided to explore strategic alternatives for U.S. cellular. Right now, TDS owns about 80 percent of that. Again, shares of both stocks almost doubling on this report. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. Yields are jumping this week. Big tech stocks are still outperforming, even as the rally broadens out. Bank of America pulling its recession call. But jobs and manufacturing and services data are all still coming in light. So if you've got questions about how to protect and grow your money right now, if you're a little confused, you are hardly alone. So we will try to get some answers from my next guest. Jean Shatsky is CEO of Her Money, a platform to help entry-level savers, especially women, narrow the wealth gap. She's here on set with me along with Fast Money Trader and CEO of Metropolitan Capital Advisors, Karen Feinerman. Welcome to both of you. They recently launched Investing Fix, 2Xs and Investing Club for women. Um, so, you know, quickly explain to me why. Karen, why, la- why launch this platform? Well, actually, it was Jean's idea, and it was we want to create an environment that women can feel comfortable learning how to invest, even if they have no knowledge to start with, and ask the questions that they want to ask. And try to, we try to present it in a way that they can break it down and really sort of understand what you think, what one thinks about, for example, kind of thing I think about when I build a portfolio, but in an environment that's only women, which actually is a very different vibe. And uh, that was sort of one crucial element of it. What, Gene, do you think are the main questions? Are they about stocks versus bonds or is it tax or is it like what are the main? It's all over the place, actually. And we keep a chat running during these classes. They're live every other Monday night on Zoom. We've got hundreds of women building this portfolio together. We tee up stock ideas, mostly courtesy of Karen and people vote on which ones get added really? to the portfolio. Yeah, very interactive. And then we talk about your personal finance questions. So everything from your 401k to IRA questions to annuities and the like. Well, I put some questions out to the Instagram followers that I have, some on social media, on Twitter as well. And here are a few of them. I'll run through them. They're probably pretty familiar. Um, the first one, Karen, is how do we take advantage if interest rates continue to rise? Uh, Well, the most simple thing you could do is be short TLT or long TBT if you just really want to make a bet. Like Bill Ackman? That's not working out so well today. Not today, but, you know, after a move that it's had this week, it's it's not crazy that it would back up a little bit. That would sort of be one way. But I sort of think about the question as, why are rates rising? 
Are they rising because the economy is doing well and um, things are growing? That's generally good. And so there's a lot of places that you could be, right? Totally. Like travel, things like that. Are they because the Fed is really fighting inflation? Then you have to be, that's a different kind of answer. Yeah. But you always need to look, at, I think, at a company's balance sheet. If they have debt, that's that's trouble. Great point. And right. if, to unpack why, and then also mm-hmm. to kind of look at who would, you know, stand to gain and who would stand to lose. Yeah. Um, another question, Gene, that came in, this is an interesting one, was why can't unemployed or retired people have access to FSAs? They need them more, this uh, it person seems says. completely unfair, but FSAs... Or flex spending accounts. Flex spending accounts are offered only through employers. And the way they work, if you don't exhaust the money in your FSA each year that money actually reverts to your employer. No. So unless it does. It does so it, not. It does. I I've, mean, I've yeah. often then reverted mine back. Okay. So interesting. unless they want to change the tax code, that's not changing anything. I didn't soon. realize that. All right. This one, Karen, kind of yeah. back to you. This person says, why bother investing in any stocks other than FANG? They're the only ones. <laughs> Time and again, they've outperformed. Uh, well, okay. That's a great question. I do have a lot of FANG exposure. Right. But we can think of a time last year, for example, where that wasn't the right place to be. I think that um, there's a lot of other things that don't get as much attention that are definitely worthy of investing in that. um, But if you only have a very small portfolio that you want to build, that's fine. That's an okay way to go. But I think there's a lot of other things that work well. Diversify. Well, actually, excellent point. Thank you for bringing that up. Diversification is really important, even if um, even if it's a small portfolio. Some mm-hmm. diversification is really important. One just thing I want to add about the club that I think is important. So we not only teach them like what what I look for when I look for investments, but also some of the knowledge that I've gained through being in this business a long time. They answer questions like, well, why if a company reported bad earnings does the stock go up? Oh, sure. Things like that. Learning about expectations and you know sort of. Just market knowledge you get having made a lot of mistakes, right? Right. right. And how to keep your emotions at bay, too, right? right? Karen keeps us all calm when we're not (laughs) feeling so calm. Right. And by the way, if people want to join us, we would love to have them. It's at hermoney.com. Okay, great. So then the final question, which a lot of people are learning about Treasury Direct and and thinking about owning treasuries for the first time. Gene, what are some implications of that? I mean, maybe is it tax efficient or, you know, like... Yeah, it can be incredibly tax efficient in terms of your portfolio. But you also have to ask yourself, are you going to be able to keep up with this pace of buying individual treasuries? Is this how you actually want to approach the bond component of your portfolio, are you better off just going with a total bond market fund knowing that you're never going to rebalance and calling it a day? Right. That was the question from Joe, Karen. You know, what about the T-bill and chill strategy? Uh, you know, I, I had never bought a T-bill until the last year, and I, I'm they, embarrassed to say I did not know how. I didn't either. I it's, know. it's not that easy. The, right. the website's a little clunky. It's, it's very a little clunky. clunky, and I did the lame thing and ended up, you know, just having a broker do it. But, <laughs> but... Uh, I, I never, the risk reward at five and ha, 5.43, I happen to remember, was, uh, I, I never, you know, felt like, wow, you there's a risk before. reward in treasuries like that, that I, I haven't seen it in Exactly. Years. All right. We'll look forward to see. So Monday night is the, uh, is the meeting. The yes. Zoom, look what Zoom lets us do now. We could never have done before. Exactly. Yeah. Amazing. Gene Chavity, thank you for joining <laughs> you. me, Karen Feinerman. We really appreciate it today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. 
So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.